Hello, Patrick Bishop here. Just to let you know that the episode you're about to hear was recorded before Saul and I learned of the demise of Yevgeny Prigozhin. To hear our thoughts on these astonishing events, please listen to our emergency podcast, which you can find on our feed if you've not already heard it. But do keep on listening for our take on other events this week, as well as our answers to all your questions. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. It's been quite a ride since we brought out our first pod on the Falklands War in early 2022. And thanks to all of you, our download numbers have grown steadily from just a few thousand a week to more than 100,000. It's testament to the fact that, like us, people around the world care about what's going on in Ukraine. Well, as for events in Ukraine, it's been quite a week, with the welcome if much overdue news that Netherlands and Denmark, with American approval, will give at least 61 F-16 fighters to Ukraine when their pilots have completed the necessary training. There have also been significant gains for Ukraine on the battlefield. But all is not rosy in the garden. This week, the Washington Post quoted American intelligence sources as saying the Ukraine counteroffensive is unlikely to achieve its objective of severing the land bridge between Russia and Crimea. A Russian missile targeted a theater in Cherniv, killing seven and wounding more than 100 civilians. And our old friend Evgeny Prigozhin, the boss of Wagner, has popped up in Africa saying he was determined to make, quote, Russia even greater on all continents and Africa even more free. We'll be discussing all this and more, but first, what about those F-16s, they saw? It's about time, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. We've been speaking about this for so long, Patrick. Uh, we'd mentioned before on the podcast that some NATO countries were training F-16 pilots. But this is the first concrete news that the planes themselves will be delivered by both the Netherlands and Denmark. And this was confirmed this week by Volodymyr Zelensky, who said the Netherlands had promised 42 F-16s and Denmark another 19, making 61 in total. Now, earlier in the week, the Biden administration had approved the transfer of F-16s, thus smoothing the way for Zelensky's announcement. The transfer of the F-16s is partly intended to combat the Russian Su-35 fighter jet and win air superiority for the Ukrainians. Well, we've been asked about its capabilities before, so I've done a bit of research on a US government website which says this about the F-16 Fighting Falcon. It's a compact multi-role fighter aircraft. It's highly maneuverable and has proven itself in an air-to-air combat and air-to-surface attack role. It provides a relatively low-cost, high-performance weapon system for the United States and allied nations. In an air combat role, the F-16's maneuverability and combat radius, distance it can fly to enter combat, stay, fight, and return, exceed that of all potential threat fighter aircraft. It can locate targets in all weather conditions and detect low-flying aircraft in radar ground clutter. In an air-to-surface role, the F-16 can fly more than 500 miles, deliver its weapons with superior accuracy, defend against enemy aircraft, and return to its starting point. An all-weather capability allows it to accurately deliver ordnance during non-visual bombing conditions. In other words, summing all this up, it's a serious bit of kit, and it's not surprising that Ukrainians are desperate to get their hands on it. So the big question now is, when will the Dutch and Danish F-16s be delivered? 
Well, uh, sadly, the answer to that, Saul, seems to be not any time soon. The Danes uh, said at a joint press conference that six F-16s will be delivered around New Year, eight more next year, and the remaining five not until 2025, so the year after next. The Dutch might deliver sooner, but they're not making any promises. And, of course, the date of transfer depends on the training of Ukrainian pilots and getting the right support infrastructure inside Ukraine itself. Meanwhile, according to the U.S. defense officials, they're saying it's unlikely F-16s will be flying combat sorties in Ukraine before next summer. So all this is very infuriating, isn't it, for people like us who've been urging the necessity for the uh, Americans to get their skates on on this one. And, you know, it's only going to have an adverse effect on the battlefield. But there is some encouraging news this week on what's going on on the front lines. Ukraine's made some tactically significant advances in a number of directions. Probably the most important was around Robotinje, which the names come up quite a lot in western Zaporizhia, partly due, it would appear, to the use Ukrainian use of the American-supplied cluster bombs, cluster munitions. And Russian attempts to try and push back the Ukrainian advance have failed. And according to the ever-reliable Institute for the Study of Warfare, Ukrainian attacks on Robotinia are tactically significant because the Ukrainian advance in the area may allow Ukrainian forces to begin operating past the densest Russian minefields. And this is something, of course, you know, which is this is what's really the big factor in slowing down Ukrainian progress. They've also made gains near Bakhmut and Kremenia. The Russians have been talking about their counteroffensive. They've been trying to get a sort of propaganda narrative going about how they're actually advancing themselves around Kupiansk, but that seems to have stalled again because um, of cluster bombs. The troops really don't want to advance into areas where there may be, well, there will be lots of these little bomblets which can um, blow their legs off or kill them or whatever. And uh, so, you know, I'm the one actually who was rather skeptical at the outset about what value cluster bombs would have, but it seems that they are being put to very useful effect, these US-supplied cluster bombs. So, mea culpa. Well, also, Patrick, when the Ukrainians seem to be doing well, Russian mill bloggers start complaining, and in this particular case, they're complaining uh, about low morale and a lack of equipment, particularly along the eastern front line, which you've been uh, referencing. On the other hand, one mill blogger has lauded the improvement in Russian artillery tactics from a year ago. Whether they got enough guns and shells to take advantage of this improvement, given the success of the Ukrainian counter-battery fire, which we've referenced before, is another matter. Now on to grimmer news, including the despicable targeting of the Shevchenko Theatre in Cherniv City on the 19th of August by a Russian ballistic missile, which caused horrific casualties, killing seven and injuring at least 117. Ukrainian Deputy Defence Minister Haliar Maliar has accused the Russians, not without justification, of deliberately targeting events and locations. In this case, a meeting of drone designers that had, some sources say, been advertised online, although the organisers deny that. And they're doing this, says Maliar, to emotionally affect Ukrainian civilians, in other words, affect morale. 
There was also a report in the Wall Street Journal that claimed that Belarusian authorities had forcibly exposed deported Ukrainian children to pro-Kremlin propaganda. We're not particularly surprised about this news, but the paper cited leaked Russian and Belarusian documents that confirm Belarusian authorities have forcibly removed over 2,000 children from occupied Ukraine to Belarus. And footage and images from the camp purportedly show children training with small arms, meeting with Russian Orthodox priests, and watching shows glorifying President Vladimir Putin. But what about that US intelligence assessment that we referenced, Patrick? What have you heard about that? Well, as we mentioned at the top, the Washington Post quoted uh, US intelligence sources as saying that Ukraine's counteroffensive will fail to reach the key southeastern city of Melitopol, which in turn would mean that Kiev won't fulfill its principal objective of severing Russia's land bridge to Crimea in this year's push. Well, this story, as um, Phillips O'Brien, who we often quote on the podcast, has pointed out, it's illogical on a number of levels. The first is that the counteroffensive doesn't actually need to reach Melitopol to sever the land bridge to Crimea. It just needs to get close to Melitopol so that it's got fire control over the road. It can rain down artillery fire on that supply line uh, that runs through the city. And yet the quote from the US intelligence officials uh, suggests just that. It reads, Ukraine's forces, which are pushing towards Melitopol from the town of Robotinye, more than 50 miles away, will remain several miles outside of the city. Well, so what? As long as they can fire down on the road, does that matter? The US officials then go on, you know, rather nonsensically to blame the Ukrainians' failure to achieve a decisive breakthrough on their unwillingness to take more casualties and insist that the earlier arrival of F-16s and long-range missile systems such as uh, ATAC-Ms wouldn't have made any difference. What's your take on that, Saul? Well, it's pretty irresponsible journalism in my view. I mean, you've got the uh, Washington Post, which seems to have a bit of an agenda going on here, a sort of pro-Republican, let's keep out of this agenda. And What's clearly the case, Patrick? I mean, let's take that last bit of information that they they added in, that it wouldn't have made any difference for F-16s and ATAC-Ms to have come any earlier. I mean, a ludicrous comment. Clearly, the use of ATAC-Ms would have allowed the Ukrainians to degrade Russian infrastructure and the ability to bring up supplies. There's no question about that. They're using storm shadows to very good effects in that sense. And we've already spoken on the program about what F-16s can do. So this strikes me as a bit of an agenda, political agenda on the one hand, and also an administration, frankly, trying to cover its tracks. Okay, well, that's enough for part one. Join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, the first question is from Clark Campbell, and and he asks, what is the feeling in Ukraine towards Western companies that still operate in Russia? Is there a strong boycott mentality, especially with regards to well-known consumer brands such as Nestle, Unilever, etc.? He goes on to say, I know from my side, I wish Western governments would prohibit trade. Do we know anything about this, Patrick, from our trip? Well, I've, I've done a bit of research on this. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, more than a thousand companies simply shut down and walked away from Russia after the invasion. But others, including these names that Clark references, Nestle, Unilever, the Italian 
Unicredit Bank. They stayed. Why did they stay? Well, it seems they weren't really hoping to exploit the situation in the short term, uh, so much as preserve their footprint in Russia. Now, the combined loss to those who went is about 100 billion euros. That's according to the Financial Times. Most of them, obviously, from the big oil and gas enterprises like BP, Shell, and Total. However, the expert view is that those that stay behind have made a big mistake. Uh, There's no real chance of business getting back to normal in the foreseeable future. And they've left it too late to get out now because they're very likely, if they try to do so, to have all their assets expropriated by the Russian state if they do. So I don't think there's any need for boycotts, Clark, um, as these companies have already pretty much shot themselves in the foot. Okay, next one from Justin Plummer in Australia. And this is relevant to our recent trip. He says, I wonder if you could enlighten people on the atmosphere in Ukraine in the areas away from the front, with the trolls and anti-Ukraine support arguing that as Kiev is safish to walk around, then the war is clearly not worth supporting. Well, if you listen to our Wednesday episode, Justin, you will realize that even in Kyiv, you are not safe. There were, of course, attacks when we were there. We had the shocking sight of a, of a Kinzhal, we think, a supersonic missile being shot out of the air. And although people on the one hand are trying to live their lives as normal, quite rightly, they are also under daily threat, even in Kyiv. So there's uh, no question that it's normal, it's safish anywhere uh, to be truthful. And and of course, we've also mentioned that terrible attack in Cheniv on the theatre in which seven people died and over 100 were injured. So no, there is nowhere in Ukraine that's absolutely safe, including Lviv. When we passed through on the way back, that was attacked by missiles. So I think it's fair to say, Justin, that uh, the support is necessary. And anytime anyone says to you, uh, you know, let's not bother supporting Ukraine because the war really isn't having much effect on there, you know, just quote us, it is a dangerous place to be. Yeah, talking to someone the other day and telling them about how uh, life is relatively normal in, in Kiev, apart from the occasional noise of the sirens, which actually Saul and I both noticed, a um, bit of a digression here, but the the, the noise they, the air raid sirens make exactly the same as, the, as, as what you hear in a thousand war movies. You know, it's that Second World War sound, that sort of howl, that wailing, that rather eerie wailing noise. It obviously works. Anyway, when I, I mentioned the kind of relative normality of Kiev, people said, oh, well, you, you shouldn't make too much of that because it'll, it'll mean your listeners become, or people who hear this will become less sympathetic to Ukraine. And I think that is a sad fact of human nature. People do think, well, because they're not being bombed night, noon, and morning in the big cities, uh, do they still necessarily need our support? Well, as Saul rightly says, there are plenty of places still getting hit, as was reported earlier. And the fact that Ukrainians are making what, in my view, is an admirable effort not to let the war poison their ordinary lives shouldn't blind us to the fact that they are very much engaged in an existential struggle. Now, there's one here from Duncan Larkin. He says, the US embassy have just told American citizens in Belarus to leave. Why do you think that is? Does the US possess intelligence of something that's about to happen? If so, what could that be? You know something about this, don't you, Saul? Well, I I mean, the first thing we do know, of course, is that there has been lots of saber rattling from both the Belarusian uh, president, but also from Wagner as to, you know, the potential for incursions into Poland. There have even been uh, flights by Belarusian aircraft. So generally speaking, Belarus is seen as a place where there could be trouble ahead. And if there is trouble and American citizens need to leave, and obviously the Americans are thinking, let's get out sooner rather than later, 
Um, one of the potential consequences is that other EU countries will have shut down their borders with Belarus. In other words, get out now while you still can. Do we really believe anything's going to happen in Belarus, uh, that even they're going to launch an attack out of Belarus back into Kiev, possibly using Wagner? No, I, I don't for a second, actually. I mean, what is clearly in the Russians' interest is to have the Ukrainians think that there may be a new front started from that direction, because, of course, they'll have to devote some of their resources to stopping it, uh, and therefore that will weaken their efforts in the east. So in my view, that's what's really going on. Really interesting one here from Brian in Victoria, Australia, who informs us something I didn't know, uh, that the Telegraph, the UK newspaper, the Telegraph, its uh, Ukraine podcast has been banned and sanctioned uh, by the Kremlin. They responded that they will wear these sanctions like a badge of honor. So what do you think? Are we next, Saul? Well, I'm, I was rather disappointed. I, I saw this on social media first, actually, and it was the team saying, you know, they were very delighted that they had been sanctioned because it meant that what they were doing had had some effect. And I have to say, I was a little bit disappointed we weren't in, included in the list because the uh, Rus Russians, of course, have, have put out a list of journalists. I mean, anyone and everyone's on that list, Patrick. So we should be a bit put out. But on the other hand, having just been to Ukraine and being warned before we got there by our security expert, David. Alexander, that uh, we needed to be very careful about being tracked by our phones because we were almost certainly people of interest. You could say, on the other hand, this is quite good news that we've somehow slipped under the radar, and that meant that uh, we were able to move around Kiev and Lviv, meeting some very interesting people, including military, as you're going to discover on the pod in the next few weeks, um, with impunity. So, on the one hand, I'd like us to be better known, and on the other hand, I'm quite glad that uh, we seem to not be particularly people of interest for the moment, but I doubt very much that will last. Okay, another question from Peter Gallagher from Dublin, uh, and he says, following your recent visit to Ukraine, is the sluggish progress of the Ukrainian counteroffensive adversely affecting support for the Ukrainian government? Patrick, what do you think? Well, it is an interesting question, isn't it? I've just been literally got off the phone to ask old Kruzhelnitsky, our friend who's uh, back in Kiev at the moment, and um, was asking what he thought about that. And he says, you know, the basic messages, and I think this is we'd endorse this and what we learned when we were there, is that, you know, there's a lot of popular understanding of what the military is trying to do and what the uh, government is trying to do. And they understand that the policy is to try and preserve lives, only take risks with lives when they think there's going to be a real military benefit. And of course, these are the lives of their husbands, their sons, their daughters. So they understand that caution and they trust their leader's judgment. They understand that those sacrifices uh, have to have some meaning. Uh, this is, not, of course, not the Russian way of doing things. So I think the message is that faith in the judgment of Zelensky and the military commanders remains strong. And it's measured by their something else we, uh, we discovered there, this determination to see it through to the end. We spoke to one chap called Dennis, who'd been quite critical of the slow progress against corruption, but uh, not of the war. And, and when we said, well, do you think it's perhaps time to sort of, you know, talk to the Russians, open some path to peace? He was absolutely vehemently against this idea, totally uh, opposed to negotiations. And certainly in our time, I don't know if you heard anything different, Saul, but I didn't hear any adverse criticism 
of the military at all. No, quite the reverse, in fact. Uh, you, you make a good point, Patrick. It reminds me of people endlessly criticising Montgomery during the Second World War in the desert and later on in the Northwest Front for for being too slow and cautious. And, and of course, he was, you know, just speak to a veteran who served under Montgomery and you will realise that they hugely appreciated the extra effort he made to carefully prepare his battles and not throw away the lives of his men. And it's exactly the same in Ukraine at the moment, which makes, of course, that Washington Post article in, in which they said not enough lives have been expended, not enough, uh, you know, risk had been taken. Uh, it puts that into sharp relief, doesn't it? Every country wants to win a war that it feels justified in engaging in, and you, the Ukrainians certainly do, but they don't want their best and their brightest to die in the process. And if that means the war's going to last another six months, they're very happy to support it for those six months. So for those people out there who think that Ukrainians are going to lose interest in the war, um, they need to take it from us that that is not going to happen anytime soon. Okay, there's an interesting one from Nicola uh, in Winchester in the UK. She says that she talks about welcoming uh, a lovely Ukrainian woman into her home through the government's Homes for Ukraine scheme. Uh, This has been, as she says, an unexpectedly amazing and positively life-changing experience for her and for us too. And we've now become close friends. The experience has helped Nicola to gain a much better understanding of Ukraine and the brave people who live there and who've been through so much anyway, even before the war broke out. Her question relates to the compensation Ukrainians will get to rebuild their homes and villages. Do we know anything about this and how is it proposed it would work? Patrick, what do you know about this? Well, I've just got some hot intel straight from a very close source. It happens to be my wife, actually, who works in this sort of area. She's um, engaged in the sort of social side of loans to uh, Ukraine uh, through her bank And so the answer is yes, the Ukrainian government has already started a process of compensation for people living in damaged houses. They reckon the calculation already is that that to date, the bill is about $54 billion of destroyed and damaged housing. And so Ukrainians who live in a damaged house or destroyed house, they can apply for compensation. Don't know where the money precisely is coming from. So that's that, that's sort of pretty good news, I would have thought. In the meantime, there's a lot of patching up going on. We came across the other day, my wife and I, uh, a private initiative called Insulate Ukraine, which is a non-profit run by a guy uh, called Harry Blackstone Houston, who's um, got a, a really good enterprise going, putting uh, installing PVC windows in, in shattered houses. So, you know, publicly and privately, the work is going on. Okay, question from Kaiser O'Brien. He's noticed an increasing negative pattern to the Western reporting on the war in Ukraine, particularly from American media and specifically the Washington Post. Interesting you say that, Kaiser, uh, given what we've already said about the Washington Post's reporting. His question is twofold. Is the increased negativity in the United States media a reflection of the actual position of the government and the views of the general public? Or is it a case of the media, however its views are derived, attempting to influence future policy? And his second question is, is this reporting irresponsible? Well, I'm not so sure about the first question because it's very interesting, isn't it, where all of this comes from? There is an element of politics in the Washington Post reporting. I think they're sort of preparing the ground for how they can withdraw 
from Ukraine. But you also get the feeling that the general public aren't entirely on board with that sort of attitude. We've spoken before about how even very influential Republicans are firmly in support of this war. Is it irresponsible? In my view, it is very irresponsible. We've we've also said many times on the pod how important it is that we do reflect the positive aspects of this, uh, you know, this life or death struggle for the Ukrainians, because there is a danger that people in the West, if they read too many negative stories in the press, uh, are going to change their feeling on on whether or not their governments uh, should be spending all this money in terms of support. So I think it's irresponsible. But of course, if there is a political angle involved, then you can understand why it's happening. Yeah, I've noticed um, how the Financial Times now routinely talks about the, quote, stalled Ukrainian counteroffensive. Now, that's, in my view, as an old journalist, really lazy. And you're right, Kaiser, it, it does have a negative effect. It sort of seeps into people's thinking. Now, my old editors, like Max Hastings at The Telegraph, would have jumped on that straight away, and a memo would have gone round banning the phrase. So, Rula Kalaf, she's the FT editor, please note. James here from Newcastle, Australia, who's thinking of going to Ukraine to volunteer. Well done, James. To do what he says, I'm not sure. I thought I'd get in touch and see if you could recommend some groups that I can reach out to since you're there. Actually, we're not anymore, but we were there. And he's in two minds about volunteering. I really want to help in any way that I can and contribute money to Ukraine's economy. But I also don't want to be a burden. Well, again, good for you. That's that's, that's intelligent thinking. Uh, He doesn't want to chew up Ukrainian resources, food accommodation, etc. What's the feeling from Ukrainian regarding volunteers? Well, so we can um, point James in the direction of, uh, of some good organizations, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first and obvious point to make, James, is you won't be considered a burden if you go there. Uh, Pretty much everyone was pleased to see us, probably because through the podcast, we were trying to give a sense of what was really happening in the country rather than some of the propaganda that we've already referred to. But also because, you know, they they are delighted when people make the effort. Uh, It takes a lot of time and effort to get to Ukraine. But if you do go, there are lots of useful things you can do. I mean, even if you just want to go as far as Lviv, our first port of call, there's the frontline kitchen there, which is uh, doing great stuff. Something like 40,000 meals a day are are being prepared. So that's something really useful. But also, you could get in contact with Cars for Ukraine. We've already spoken to Richard Lofthouse on the program about this. They are an excellent program that are taking out um, cars, mainly trucks, for use for the Ukrainian military. They're being bought up in the UK and they're being taken out by volunteers. So you could contact them uh, and, and hopefully help out in that sense. And on the subject of cars for Ukraine, there was an interesting piece in the Times this week in which our friend Richard Lofthouse was quoted as uh, complaining that the mayor of London is dragging his heels on donating non-ULES compliant trucks to Ukraine. Of course, many of those are now being taken off the streets and they could be very useful over there. It's interesting that the uh, the mayor was making his excuses saying, no, it's all too complicated. And Richard's counter argument is, no, it's pretty straightforward. Just give them to us and we'll get them out there. So James, get in touch with Cars for Ukraine if you want to help in that sense. Another organization that's doing great work out there, of course, is the Halo Trust. I'm not quite sure you can just volunteer for them, but they are uh, training up people to do the absolutely crucial business of removing ordnance and landmines, which are strewn all over Ukraine. Uh, And we went to visit them during our recent trip, and you'll hear all about that in a future episode. 
Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, next week, there'll be another installment in our travelogue from Ukraine on the Wednesday. And then on Friday, uh, the news episode is going to have a slightly different lineup. I'm away next week and I'm taking a break, uh, even from the podcast, the first one in it must be more than a year now, isn't it, Saul? So instead, Saul's going to be joined by Roger Morehouse, a great buddy of ours, a brilliant historian of the regions where this war is being fought, so you'll be in very good hands. Do join us for both next week. Mm-hmm.